With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode includes extended descriptions of skeletons, human remains, and pathology. We discuss the mummy of Tutankhamun and what it can tell us about his childhood. In particular, we explore features of Tutankhamun's skull, bones, and infancy. I realize some listeners may wish to avoid discussion of human remains, so please bear that in mind and use discretion when listening to this episode. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 143, The Boy King. A look at the childhood of King Tutankhamun. Thanks to the preservation of his tomb and his mummy, we can examine aspects of his early life. Today, we introduce the childhood of Tutankhamun, what his mummy tells us about his early experiences. This podcast comes to you on behalf of Jesse, Angela, and Laura, who generously support the show as overseers on Patreon. Friends, you are too kind. Your gifts bring all good things and help sustain the cycle of Ma'at. May this episode bring you joy. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. On with the story. The year was approximately 1338 BCE. Regnal year six, under the majesty of Tutankhamun, the son of Ra, the king of southern and northern Egypt. Tutankhamun was about 15 years old, give or take. So he was a teenager, physically maturing, and leaving his childhood behind. These days, the world knows Tutankhamun as the boy king, a child emperor ruling the greatest of ancient kingdoms. But really, Tutankhamun was not a boy king for long. In fact, most of his reign took place during his teenage years. Tutankhamun came to power around age 9 and died around 19. So our image of him might be slightly off. He probably wasn't a fresh-faced child with an innocent smile, at least not all the time. Instead, we could imagine a gangly, slightly awkward teenager. I will cover Tutankhamun's adult life in a future episode. Today, I want to focus on his childhood. What were the circumstances of his birth? More importantly, what does his mummy tell us about the king's early life? We have a decent amount of information for some of these questions. In many ways, we know more about Tutankhamun's life than any other pharaoh. So, come with me as we travel back in time even more than usual. Tutankhamun was a slender child. He had long, gracile limbs and a large head. 
To cover the king's body, let's start from the top and then work our way down. First up, Tutankhamun's head. Studies of Tutankhamun show that he had an interesting profile. You see, the king's head bulges out at the back and is slightly flat on top. It gives him an elongated look, which is curious. Various scholars have looked at Tutankhamun and his predecessor Akhenaten and wondered if there is a genetic factor in the skull shapes, some kind of inherited condition or disease that might cause the skull to grow in this manner. I won't dive into details except to say that the skull of Tutankhamun and the mummy that might be his father are slightly longer than usual. There's no consensus on the cause of this. Studies of the king's DNA are too unreliable to offer much certainty. So Tutankhamun may have inherited some kind of genetic trait, or he may not. It is still a matter of debate. On the other hand, a different hypothesis might give us an interesting answer. You see, it is possible that Tutankhamun or his parents practiced headbinding. Headbinding is a process where you wrap the head of a child in cloth. Strips of linen wind around the head tightly. This shapes the baby's skull as it grows. Over time, headbinding can artificially lengthen a child's cranium. Headbinding has occurred in many cultures around the world. In Asia, Europe, Africa, Australia, and the Americas, some people have intentionally shaped the heads of their children. There are various reasons for this. Sometimes it is medical, sometimes it's artistic, sometimes it has a religious or social symbolism. Whatever the exact motivation, headbinding is an interesting practice. It is possible that Tutankhamun received this treatment. One reason why headbinding seems possible is that Tutankhamun's skull is symmetrical. In other words, his head is long, but the shape of it is consistent all the way round. If the skull was naturally long, say from a disease, we might expect less symmetry, a bit more randomness or deformation. So, if the king's skull is symmetrical, artificial headbinding might explain it. Another reason why headbinding may be a factor is that the king's skull has two small depressions. At the top and back of the head, Tutankhamun's skull dips in slightly. This would match the pressure point where strips of linen went around the head, leaving a distinct impression. So there are a couple of reasons to suspect that this might have happened. At the moment, the headbinding argument is just a hypothesis. It has not, to my knowledge, been peer-reviewed or submitted to academic, scientific scrutiny. But it is an interesting proposal, and I hope somebody follows up on it in the future. For one thing, if headbinding was something that royal Egyptians practiced at this time, that could provide further clues to the strange appearance of Akhenaten and his family. Maybe that king experienced headbinding, or maybe he instituted it as a practice. If headbinding was a thing, or if it was more common than we suspected, that could open a new door in historical research. So, headbinding is just a proposal, but hopefully somebody chases it up. Moving on from the skull shape, we can talk about Tutankhamun's mouth. This one is interesting. 
Tutankhamun's skull shows that he had a cleft palate. This is where the roof of the mouth does not close fully during childhood. Cleft palates develop during infancy, and they can have a range of side effects. For example, the baby Tutankhamun might have experienced, quote, shortness of breath, difficulty swallowing, or ear infections, end quote. These issues are not universal, but they could have affected the child Tutankhamun. The cleft affected the hard palate of Tutankhamun's mouth. This is the worst, quote-unquote, of the cleft palate types. The hard palate is that frontal section, the bony plate which separates your mouth and your nose. So having a hole in the hard palate means that your mouth and nasal cavity are connected. This can make breathing and feeding slightly complicated. Because of that cleft palate, Tutankhamun, as a baby, would have had trouble nursing. The gap in his mouth meant that he could not form a seal around the nipple. This is important for sucking the milk forth. In other words, the baby would have to work extra hard to get the milk he required. This had a double effect. On the one hand, it meant Tutankhamun needed extra care and assistance when breastfeeding. Also, all of that extra suckling meant that he used a lot of energy. Chances are that baby Tutankhamun was a constant feeder, voraciously consuming milk as often as possible. So you can imagine that feeding this baby was a challenge. Whoever cared for him needed to manage the process carefully. They would have spent a lot of time helping the child to feed. As a result, Tutankhamun and his nurse would have spent many hours together. The woman would spend a lot of her day holding him close and helping him survive. That care and attention probably created a strong bond between the baby and his wet nurse. In the next episode, we will get a sense of just how strong that was. Another effect of that cleft palate was that Tutankhamun may have made sounds while breastfeeding. As he suckled, the gap between his mouth and nose might have caused clicking or snuffling noises. If that is accurate, then it is a rare moment where we can imagine the smallest details of an ancient pharaoh's life. As he grew, the king then had to learn speech. Cleft palates can affect a person's ability to form certain sounds. It is not universal, but it does happen so Tutankhamun may have had issues with speaking. One effect of a cleft palate can be a high or nasally voice. You know when you have a cold, your nose is blocked, and speaking sounds different. This might have been something that Tutankhamun dealt with on a daily basis. Again, that is speculative. Not everybody with a cleft palate experiences that issue. But it is possible that Tutankhamun spoke with difficulty and his voice may have been affected. So, the young king dealt with a cleft palate. His infancy may have been challenging. Speaking may have been difficult. As a baby, he needed extra care, and as he grew, issues with the throat or ears might have caused discomfort. These are all hypothetical issues based on modern studies of cleft palates, so we cannot be sure what Tutankhamun's life was like exactly. But these experiences may have been part of his early years. It is the closest we have ever been to a pharaoh's birth and infancy. 
after birth that baby Tutankhamun would feed, grow, and learn. In time, he would start to walk. But again, walking might have been difficult. You see, Tutankhamun probably had issues with his foot. Studies of Tutankhamun's mummy have noted that his left foot shows some issues. This could be a club foot, which is disputed, or a phenomenon called supination. Supination is where the weight of your foot tends to roll outwards when walking. Normally, it should roll inwards so that you push off from your big toe. Supinated feet roll outward, which disrupts the usual pattern of human movement. In time, this can cause back pain, ankle injuries, stress to the knees, and inflammations. In other words, Tutankhamun may have had issues with walking. If that is true, it would explain why his tomb had a lot of walking sticks and canes. We will talk about those another time, but for now, it's enough to know that the young Tutankhamun may have had trouble with his left foot. This is still disputed by some academics, but it is possible. So imagine the toddler stumbling along, perhaps supported by a walking stick. Eventually, he got the hang of it, but one foot always gave him trouble. So, Tutankhamun had a slightly problematic foot. His early steps could have been a challenge. We will come back to this problem in the future. Suffice to say, mobility could have been an issue. The child, learning to walk, may have needed assistance. To be clear, many of these problems are speculative. The true extent of Tutankhamun's challenges is unknown. Maybe some of these issues were not too bad. Maybe others were quite a problem. You may have seen headlines touting Tutankhamun as a, quote, crippled, inbred king, end quote. In my opinion, that is overstating the situation. The young man definitely had challenges, but some of the things he experienced can vary in their intensity. Cleft palates, for example, can present a range of issues, but they do not have a single, universal appearance. In other words, some cleft palates can be quite disruptive, others not so much. We can study the king's mummy and speculate about the effects, but the true physical experiences? Those are lost to time. So I think we should be cautious before throwing words like crippled or inbred around. Did Tutankhamun have some physical challenges? It seems like he did. But did they cripple his ability to live or lead an active life? Well, as far as we can tell, no. With that in mind, the attention-grabbing headlines may be a bit harsh. We can observe some physical characteristics that affected the king's body. But his lifestyle, what he achieved with that body, that is another matter entirely. Overall, Tutankhamun's mummy gives us some clues to his early life. It seems that the baby might have had a difficult start. His parents could have bound his head, elongating it for effect. The baby boy had trouble with his left foot, perhaps requiring a cane to walk. Finally, his cleft palate made it difficult to feed, and in time it could have affected his speech. So the infant Tutankhamun was not in perfect health. Feeding and nourishing the infant was harder. Walking was a laborious process, and speaking or communicating might have been difficult at first. Fortunately, Tutankhamun overcame these problems. He survived the dangerous years when a baby was most vulnerable. 
He grew to be a toddler, then a child, and eventually reached his teenage years. So Tutankhamun surpassed the obstacles of his youth. We should give him credit for doing so. And we should give credit to the king's caregiver, the woman who nursed him and helped him grow. That woman is well known in the historical record, and on the next episode, we will meet her and explore her tale. For now, I want to focus on the boy and his life. In chapter 2, we come face to face with the boy king. Images or portraits of the boy survive from his treasures. Together, we can get an idea of how Tutankhamun may have looked and what his life was like. That is after the break. See you in a moment. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Chapter 2. Scientists can examine the mummy of Tutankhamun and get some basic information about his life. They can do facial reconstructions that might give an image of the boy. Facial reconstruction is a tricky craft, though. There are many variables that can affect the outcome. So modern imagery can give an idea, but it is still one that is shaped by 21st century concepts. From his own time, we do have a couple of images of Tutankhamun as a child. These are rare, Most statues and scenes show him as a youth or adult, but a few pieces survive. They mainly come from the king's tomb, and they give a sense of the face of the boy pharaoh. First up, we have a statue showing Tutankhamun as an infant. The piece in question is tiny, just a few centimetres tall. It is made of gold, and it shows the king kneeling in the pose of a child. Tutankhamun wears the blue crown, and holds the crook and the flail. He crouches like a baby, with one hand resting on his knee. At his neck, the king wears a tiny collar of beads, carnelian, faience, and gold. On his legs, a linen kilt appears in a series of lines simulating folds. The item is delicate, detailed, and beautiful. I describe this piece as a statue, but really it's a necklace. The king's tiny figure is attached to a golden chain. It is supposed to be worn around the neck. Presumably, Tutankhamun or somebody else wore this as an adornment. It may have a symbolic meaning relating to the king as Horus, or it may be a protective amulet, something the child wore to guard against evil. Or it could just be an ornament, a pretty bauble for a boy pharaoh. One of these, or all of them, could be true. Either way, this tiny statuette is a lovely little image. The baby king, golden for eternity. Finally, we have an image of Tutankhamun as a god. 
This is a wooden statue from his tomb. It shows Tutankhamun's head emerging from a lotus flower. Just the head, no body. It is 30 centimetres tall, and it shows the king without any crowns or jewellery. Tutankhamun's skin is red-brown, and his eyes have a dark intensity, with touches of red at the corners. The red in his eyes simulates the blood vessels, so it seems like the artist was trying to capture a lifelike sense. It is a beautiful image. Interestingly, this head has the same shape as Tutankhamun's skull. It is elongated, with a noticeable bulge at the rear. Also, the wooden head has that depression on the top, where somebody might have bound the head of the king. In other words, whoever made this statue probably used the king's actual head as their reference. It might be the closest we have to a portrait of Tutankhamun. This statue is gorgeous as an artistic piece, but it also has a deeper significance. Firstly, Tutankhamun appears without any crowns or jewellery, as if he is newborn, an infant in his first moment. More symbolically, the head and neck emerge from a lotus flower. The petals open up to present this portrait of the king. Beneath the lotus, the flower grows out of a blue painted mound. This is quite significant. The blue at the bottom of this statue simulates the infinite waters, the noon, that preceded creation. Then, the mound shape of the stand represents the benben, the piece of land that emerged in the first moment. Finally, the lotus flower represents the light of the sun and the fertility of Egypt. From these symbols, Tutankhamun the king emerges, as if he is the being who first arrived in creation. In other words, this pretty little statue is not just art. It also conveys an idea of Tutankhamun as a god. The first god, from whom all creation flowed. So, we have some images of Tutankhamun as a child. They capture a basic sense of his youth, and the wooden head might give us a realistic portrait, quote-unquote. On the other hand, statues like these also convey ideas, symbolic and religious concepts of the king's role in creation. Tutankhamun was a boy, but he was also a king, part of the divine world. His life, his person, was at the centre of Egypt's holy cosmos. When we gaze upon his face, we see the boy, but we also see the idea. The boy king Tutankhamun is world famous, but behind the gold and the glamour, smaller details of his life are visible. Scientists studying the mummy and historians putting together fragments can reconstruct some of his experiences. We know the king had challenges early on, but he survived and overcame those. Still, there were always issues to deal with. In that sense, Tutankhamun's life was not wine and honey. Yes, he grew up with a golden spoon in his mouth, but that mouth presented issues for his nourishment and speech. Yes, the king had access to the very best medicines and support, but his left foot gave him trouble that no doctor could cure. Finally, the king grew up surrounded by pomp, but at an early age, somebody might have bound his skull, reshaping his head. That skull shape could have a religious or political significance, 
it might relate to his destiny as a future king of Egypt. This is uncertain, but at the very least, we can say that the young ruler really did not have much control over his own body. Whether he was dealing with physical challenges, or experiencing ideas and concepts that other people forced upon him, the boy king of Egypt's life was more complicated than you might imagine. With all that in mind, the image of the boy king shines through. The idea of Tutankhamun, the child pharaoh, surpasses any difficulties he may have experienced in life. This is important. On the one hand, we want to understand and acknowledge the realities of ancient life. On the other hand, the legend of Tutankhamun has its own value. And this was something that the king and his contemporaries understood. When they commissioned beautiful statues showing Tutankhamun as a god, they manufactured a story about this young boy. For most of his life, Tutankhamun was not just a slender youth who may have had issues with speech or walking. Instead, he was a god on earth, an incarnation of divine powers. Tut Ankh Amun, the living image of Amun, was a being beyond the ordinary. That goes for his physical life and for his story. Next time on the History of Egypt podcast, we dive deeper into Tutankhamun's childhood. We explore his tomb to see the objects that he used. Some of Tutankhamun's boyhood possessions survive. Next time, we look at the king's toys, his games, his clothes, and more. That is the next episode on the History of Egypt podcast. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Extra thanks must go to Linda, Terry, TJ, and Jason, who support the show as priests on Patreon. Folks, you are too kind. Thanks to your generosity, I can buy enough milk to feed my bones. I can acquire coffee to sustain my brain. And I will commission golden portraits of my eternal face. Well, maybe not the last one, but I am grateful. And I thank you for your support. To everyone who listens to the show, thank you for joining me. I hope you have enjoyed this story. Oh, and stick around at the end for a brief epilogue. Howdy folks, welcome to an epilogue. A brief bit of extra detail that I cut out for time. In chapter 2, we discussed a statue of Tutankhamun. It showed the king, or rather his head, emerging from a lotus flower. This image of Tutankhamun is beautiful, but also symbolic. It has religious connotations that I touched on briefly. Now, I would like to go a bit deeper. The statue of Tutankhamun emerging from a lotus flower connects with a god. A god named Nefertem. Nefertem is a curious deity. His name means something like total beauty or perfection. And he has a deep connection with some powerful traditions. 
Depending on the story, Nefertem can be the lotus flower that emerged in the first moment of creation, which would make this god part of the most ancient primeval forces. Nefertem can also be associated with perfumes. Sometimes he is known as the, quote, lotus flower which is before the nose of Ra, end quote. In other words, Nefertem and his lotus are sweet-smelling, pleasing to the god of the sun. Nefertem's family is a bit muddled. Sometimes he is the son of Ra, the sun god. Other times he is the son of Ptah, lord of Memphis, the master of the spoken word. Depending on the tale, Nefertem's mother can be Sakmet, the lioness of war and disease, or Wadjet, the cobra who protects the king. Many times, Nefertem appears as an alternate version of Horus, the eternal king. So, Nefertem is one of those multi-purpose gods which the Egyptians were so fond of. His role could change depending on the time and place he was worshipped. Chances are, many towns and temples had their own idea of Nefertem and what he represented. No matter the story, though, some elements are universal. Nefertem perfect and beautiful, was associated with the lotus flower. A flower that opened its petals each dawn, embracing the sunrise. A flower that grew on the banks of the Nile, that smelled sweet. A flower that symbolized creation itself. Nefertem was a god of the utmost beauty, and by the heavens did he smell good. Tutankhamun and other Egyptians of his time used lotus flowers as a form of perfume. They inhaled the scent of the lotus, the scent of Nefertem, to sweeten the air and hit those dopamine receptors. Today, lotus flowers are harder to come by, but you could still smell like Nefertem or Tutankhamun. How? Well, it's all thanks to the wonders of Ra Egyptian. Ra Egyptian is a clean skincare line that uses products from ancient Egyptian sources. Scouring texts and consulting with Egyptologists, the folks at Ra Egyptian have put together a range of delicious items. Like the Moringa Cleansing Oil, a wonderful recipe that conditions the skin, removes impurities, and gently exfoliates. This lovely product includes organic Moringa oil, cedarwood oil, beta-hydroxy acid, and juniper berry oil. The Moringa cleansing oil is organic, cruelty-free, and vegan-friendly, so you can shop with confidence knowing that you are using the best quality, sustainable, and ethical products. Ra Egyptian is happy to offer History of Egypt listeners a special offer. Follow the link in the episode description and use the checkout code EGYPT to get 30% off any order. 30%, what a deal. You'll be helping the podcast and getting some delicious skincare. Once again, follow the link in the episode description and use the checkout code EGYPT, so that you can smell as good as Nefertem, the god who is perfect of beauty. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.